All Saints Parish in Alpena, Michigan is proud to present Let's Talk Catholic with Father Scott Lawler. This week, Father Lawler concludes his talk on the Sacrament of Confession. Fun purpose of, amend- of amendment. You all know what that is. Now, a fun purpose of amendment, again, quoting from the Council of Trent, is that a sorrow for past sin and for purpose of avoiding future sin are indispensable to contrition can be proved by natural reason alone. If a person wishes to be reconciled to a friend, he must regret the injury that he caused and he must see to it that thereafter their friendship will not be endangered by whatever he does. A firm purpose of amendment. You can only be forgiven your sins in confession if you have a firm purpose of amendment. That's whether you kid the priest on or not because it's not the priest who forgives you. God who forgives you. There are times in confession where a priest can certainly detect whether somebody's not got a firm purpose of amendment. So if someone was to come and say, I'm taking the pill and I want to go to communion because it's my brother's wedding and you have to say, are you planning to carry on doing that? Oh yeah. So there's no purpose of amendment then. They're not planning to change their life. Are not sorrow. There's no sorrow for what they did. They can't be forgiven. You can only be forgiven if you if you are, have sorrow, and you're planning to at least attempt to alter it. If someone flat out clearly says, "Oh yeah, I'm going back to that," the, probably the way that most so that, that would potentially be a common one. The other way that that most might commonly play out is people come to confession and they're living out with marriage together. I remember one of my professors telling me he used to do summer placements in Washington State, somewhere there, and he had a young couple come to him and they wanted to know about uh, natural family planning and the, the, what do you call it, the biological uh, rhythms where the man and the woman become more united. And he said, and when did you get married? And he sa- they said, we're not married. We don't, but we don't want to do anything contrary to the church. What? <laughs> so, if somebody came to you and that was what they were telling you, confession, you would need to be saying to them, okay, there's a whole conversation we need to have. And if they're saying, no, that's what we're going to do, we don't care what you're going to do, then you cannot, because it doesn't matter what I say, they will not be forgiven, because it's not about me, it's about the fact that they don't have a firm purpose of amendment. That has to be the case. That's part of when you say the act of contrition and avoid the near occasion of sin. That you will do an act in such a fashion that you will avoid, if it's humanly possible, that you will avoid being in an occasion of sin. So, a a, a circumstance where it might not be. um, Try to think one at the top of my head. If you're an alcoholic father and the only job you could get in your village, your town, is working in a bar, you endanger your health there, but if it's the only job you could get, then that's a potential occasion of sin because you might drink and you might be abusive when you drink, but equally so, you might not. And so that's a, that's a difficult circumstance. Everything in, in, in most things in confession are nuanced and priests have to read well, study well, and pray a lot because no one can really prepare you for the things that, that happen. The fifth concession that I ever heard, 
I don't think I'll ever hear one that will be so shocking. And as far as I'm concerned, that was God preparing me because now bear in mind what I did for a living before. And I, the person was face to face and I don't know how, it's the grace of God that I, in my face, I wasn't, my eyes weren't burning in my head. But they didn't. So um, it, you, you're, sometimes you're, it can be very shocking. Um, and of course, you, we're, we're, we pray to forget because it's not me that forgives, it's, it's God. So we pray to forget. But sometimes when people tell you things that are very upsetting, that can be very difficult. Um, examination of conscience. So, how do, you get, how do you do a good examination of conscience? Has anybody here got a particular favourite examination of conscience? I'm not going to ask you to recount the thing. But the, the, the catechism says that priests must make it available and must be able to, if need be, to help people examine their conscience. So, how do we address that in the parish? We have leaflets with the examination of conscience. Is that the only one that exists in the world? No. And I often say to people, you go online, find yourself on one that suits you, because it's sometimes, sometimes you might find an examination of conscience that really speaks to your heart, and then maybe six months later it doesn't, because where you were then was a darker place or a lighter place, whichever. And so I, I certainly don't, I don't think there's any harm in shopping around looking for a good examination of conscience, but it's important that you do examine your conscience. Why is it important that you would examine your conscience? Yeah. So you can, it's, it's, keep, it's, it's doing a, what do you call it, an inventory. The best way to examine your conscience is to do it every night. Every night before you go to bed, before you pray, is to look back on your day and say, am I closer to God? Am I further away? Do I owe somebody an apology? Do I owe myself an apology? Did I do something wrong? Have I done something that has made me further from my dad? What, how can I better that the next day? If I die during the night, am I in danger? And if you think you are, what you should do is say the act of contrition on your knees, if you're able, begging God that he will not take you this night before you get a chance to go to confession. That's what you should do. Because we trust in God's loving mercy. But you shouldn't get into the habit of doing that and thinking, I'll go when it suits me. If you commit a mortal sin and you can't get to confession, you should that night, or in fact as soon as you can after it, get down on your knees or lie on the ground and Try to make the most perfect act of contrition that you can, expressing your sorrow. And let tears come if they're going to, that God understands that if something happens to you this night, you're not separated from him because it was your plan. And it means a lot to you that he knows that. And God reads our souls anyway, but it's also good for us to do that as well. And then you get yourself to confession as soon as you can after that. So perfect I just touched upon perfect contrition. Perfect contrition is that you are upset, disappointed in yourself because you've separated yourself from God, who's your loving Father, who gave everything for you, who died for you. Imperfect contrition, which in theological terms is called attrition, comes from the Latin attire, 
which means to rub or wear down. So instead of crushing the stone heart out of your life, what you're doing is you've, you're getting there. It just takes a lot longer. Imperfect contrition would be that I'm sorry because if I die, I'm going to hell. Still gets you forgiven. But that's imperfect contrition. Because obviously perfect contrition should be, and that's what we should all work at, I've separated myself from my loving Father. I shouldn't want to do that. I'm devastated by that. Please, Lord, forgive me. Imperfect would be, I die tonight, I'm off to hell. I don't want that. That will still get your sins forgiven. But it's not how you should want to live. We should want to live with that change, that heart of flesh, not that heart of stone, so that um, that, that it's not fear that prompts us into contrition. It's, it's, our, it's love of our God. St. Gregory the Great, in a homily, he talked about, about this. Um, it's actually on the, book of the, on the book of the prophet Ezekiel. And here's how he describes it. He compares it to the two altars that they had in the temple in Jerusalem. The brass altar, which was for the burnt offerings, and the golden altar, which was for the incense for the Holy of Holies. Truly, there is one compunction which is born of fear, and another which springs from love. For there are many mindful of their sins, who since they fear eternal punishment, afflict themselves with daily weeping. They mourn their evil deeds and burn with fire of compunction the vices to which they still suffer temptations in their hearts. But others, free from worldly vices, or already safe through long weeping, take fire with the flame of love in tears of compunction." Place the rewards of the heavenly kingdom before the eyes of their hearts and yearn already to be among the citizens above. And that's what we should be moving towards. Okay, the benefits of frequent confession. Who remembers Pius XII? Good for you admitting it, Rosemary. Pius XII went to confession every day from the moment he was ordained. Do you think Pius XII was committing mortal sins every day? No. I've mentioned this in homilies. Mother Teresa of Calcutta went every two weeks, and when she became very ill the first time, she started going weekly. Um, And then, towards the end of her her life, her actual, when she slightly recovered, she was going daily. Does anybody know Father John Harden? Right. Father John Harden went to confession. He was a Jesuit priest in, in working on his cause, lived in Detroit, amongst other places. Um, He went to confession every day. Why would they be doing that? Well, here's what Pius XII himself said about this. Pius XII, in his encyclical, Mystici Corporis Christi, in 1949, wrote this. As you well know, venerable brethren, it is true that venial sins may be expiated in many ways that are to be highly commended, But to ensure more rapid progress day by day in the path of virtue, we will that the pious practice of frequent confession, which was introduced into the church by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, should be earnestly advocated. By it, genuinely self-knowledge is increased. Christian humility grows. Bad habits are corrected. Spiritual neglect and tepidity are resisted. The conscience is purified. The will strengthened. A salutary self-control is attained. And grace is increased in the virtue of the sacrament itself. Let those, therefore, among the younger clergy who make light of or lessen esteem for frequent confession realize 
that what they are doing is alien to the spirit of Christ and disastrous for the mystical body of our Savior. You don't go to confession because you're a sinner. Yes, you're a sinner, but that's not why you go. You go because you want to be a saint. That's why Pius XII went every day. That's why Father John Harden went every day. That's why St. John Paul went every day. Because they wanted the graces to be able to, as much as they possibly could, remove venial sin from their lives so that they went straight to heaven. That's not to be confused with people being scrupulous. You're not, they, weren't, they weren't scrupulous. Scrupulous are people like I talked about with Martin Luther who don't think that they're being forgiven. That's not why they were going every day. They were going every day because what they wanted was a desire to change their lives completely, to make sure that their heart was always a heart of love in the way that he described there. And Pius XII was a very, very holy man who has had, as you know, a lot of very evil things said about him that are thoroughly untrue, that were invented in the 60s. St. John Paul, in his synodal um, letter called Repentance and Reconciliation and Repentance, which he wrote in 1984, which I could heartily recommend, I've extensively quoted from it in some ways here, he continued to emphasize the great importance of teaching the faithful about making use of the sacrament of penance for venial sins and that it was a long-standing behavior in the church. But here's one, one of the things he says. Though the church knows and teaches that venial sins are forgiven in other ways too, for instance, by acts of sorrows, work of charity, prayer, penitential rites, she does not cease to remind everyone of the special usefulness of the sacramental moment for these sins too. The frequent use of the sacrament penance, to which some categories of the faithful are in, in fact held, strengthens the awareness that even minor sins offend God and harm the church, the body of Christ. Its celebration then becomes for the faithful the occasion and the incentive to conform themselves more closely to Christ and to make themselves more docile to the voice of the Holy Spirit. Above all, it should be emphasized that the grace proper to the sacramental celebration has a great remedial power and helps to remove the very roots of sin. Is that not beautiful? The effects of the sacrament. So, reconciliation with God. So you're reconciled with God. You get a restoration or increase of sanctifying grace. Strengthens you to battle sins. That comes from the sacramental grace that you get. And also, as many of you know, there's an inner peace that comes from using the confessional on a regular basis. And one of the reasons that that comes, and it shows the wisdom of God, of course, who knows as well, is because when someone who's not a Catholic, who <coughs> is truly sorry for something, they are perfectly contrite. As far as we are concerned in the church, their sins are forgiven then by God. However, for a Catholic, how would they know Who's a Catholic? No. You know, people that won't go to confession, right? But they say they're really, really sorry they don't need to go to confession. Well, we know already that's a sin to say that. But part of the, re the reason we know that we are forgiven of our sins is because you hear the priest say it. 
You have that consolation of hearing a priest say to absolve Vipacatis Tuis, I forgive you of your sins. That's the form. You know, sacraments have matter and form. We talked about that before. The matter is the sins, which I know sounds strange because it's not actually something you can touch, usually. But the form is the priest being properly ordained, having the authority to do it, says, I absolve you of your sins. You hear it. God lets you hear. Whereas someone who is out with the church, they can be forgiven for their sins, but they don't get that consolation of actually hearing, hearing it being said unless the Lord speaks to them directly, actually speaks to them, actually says to them, I've forgiven you your sins, which I'm sure he must do it to people. But within the church, we have that added extra thing within the sacrament where we have the gift of God saying to us through the priest, I absolve you of your sins. St. John Paul, do you remember we, well, the quote I did for our Lord? We talked about that you may be complete in your joy, that your joy may be complete. Here's what St. John Paul said near the end of reconciliation and penance. Contrition and conversion are even more a drawing near to the holiness of God, a rediscovery of one's true identity, which has been upset and disturbed by sin, a liberation in the very depth of self, thus a regaining of lost joy, the joy of being saved, which the majority of people in our time are no longer capable of experiencing. When the priest says, I absolve you from your sins, that inner peace, as you walk out, and some of you might have had me actually say this to you, is because if something happens to you there and then, you're going to wake up and see God. There's a joy. It's a joy we should all want. You've all heard me say, don't live your life with your fingers crossed. And you don't need to. There's a joy here. This is about joy. This, pet, this sacrament, which is maligned time and time again, is such a joy. It's God saying, yeah, okay, you fell down. You know what? I love you. Sorry, I need to hear you say sorry. Not for me. You need to hear yourself say it. Because the more you say it, the more you won't fall. You all know that if you deal with, any of you have dealt with children, which is most of you, that even if the child, you know the child's sorry, they have to say it because it helps them. It helps them grow to be able to say, I'm sorry. It's a growth. And that's why it's so important. Now, the last thing I want to cover here is the three rights of administering the sacrament. So, there's individual, right, which most of you have experienced. There's the communal services, which is, you know, when you, you get together and um, you say the act of contrition together, but you go off to have one-to-one -one confession. And there is general absolution, which I'm, there is a, a lot of myths around general absolution because it was terribly abused. And I hope all the priests who have abused it and abuse it get to the very sacrament that we're talking about because it's a very serious thing to abuse any sacraments. So here is what Canon 960 of the Code of Canon Law says. Individual and integral confession and absolution constitute the only ordinary means by which a member of the faithful, conscious of grave sin, is reconciled with God and the church. Only physical or moral impossibility excuses from confession of this type. In such a case, reconciliation can be attained by other means. 
there are only two circumstances under which general absolution can be used. One is the imminent danger of death, and there's not enough time for a priest to hear the individual confessions. So, if a bomb goes off here, or we hear something that sounds like a plane, a large plane, coming in towards us in this building, I can say, who's sorry for the sins? And you either shout yes, or you put your hand up, and I can say, ego te absolvo peccatis tuis, or vos, because it's plural. And you all have your sins forgiven. Right? You could be in a plane, priest in a plane, plane's going down. Is everybody here? Sorry for their sins. Yes. I absolve you of your sins in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. We'll all have our sins forgiven. The only other circumstance that it's legitimate is say I'm a priest in Texas, you know, which is bigger than Europe, right? And there's some parish somewhere that only sees a priest once every six weeks. But it has seasonal workers, a lot of Spanish seasonal workers, a lot of, a lot of Spanish speakers. I don't have time, perhaps, to hear their confessions because of the conditions and things like that. I can then do the same thing. I can do a general absolution for them. That's the only two circumstances. And in regard to the first one, if we hear a plane coming or something like that, and I say, who is is everybody sorry for their sins? If the plane doesn't hit, you then have to get to individual confession as soon as possible thereafter. Now, most of you know, I would suspect, that there was a time in this diocese where there were plenty of parishes that were having general absolution. That was a liturgical abuse. And those people didn't have their sins forgiven because it didn't meet the requirements, even if the bishop said it did. He doesn't have the authority. He can't change canon law. Canon law itself says that the only, the only person that canon law doesn't apply to is the supreme pontiff. So anybody who tells you that they go to somewhere that's got general absolution, you have a duty of kindness and charity to say to them, no. Your sins are not being forgiven. You have to go individually with the priest, apart from in very specific circumstances. And in that one where I was talking about, as an example, Texas, the priest doesn't decide that. He has to ask the bishop, is this a circumstance where I can apply this, this canon? He doesn't. You know, he doesn't get there and think, well, there's 42 people here for confession, and um, I... Uh, I need to go out and get a pizza. And um, so in that case, I'm going to do general absolution. He doesn't get to do that. He misses his pizza then. That's just sad and that's how it is. And that's, that's the reality of it. Okay. So I don't think I'll save you the time because I, I know that was, a, that was very long. You know, my plan was that I would do this and the sacrament of anointing together because I thought it would be quite quick. What a fool am I? Um, Father Joe was telling me that um, he was listening to the radio, was it today? Oh, yeah, yeah he, happened to, he, he happened to catch a little bit on the, the radio um, where somebody was phoning up and they were speaking so highly about the parish because the parish had two hours of confession a week. We have seven. And people come. And you know, uh, um, 
as most of you know, Christmas Eve last year, I was in the confessional for seven hours and Father Joe was in for four and a half. He's older than me, but I phoned one of my friends because it, get, it brought us a great deal of joy. I mean, it's, it tells us how special all of you are, but it brought us a great deal of joy. But I phoned one of my friends and he said to me, well, that's really wonderful, Scott. That's only two-fifths of what the Curie of Ars, Jean-Marie Vianney did, per day. Now, we were exhausted, we were, de- we were dehydrated, you know, we had a lot of confessions during Advent. But it brings you a joy to know that people want to be reconciled with God, to know that people want to get to heaven as much you, as you want them to get to heaven. That alone is what many priests are depriving themselves of by the fact that they're not willing to sit and hear confessions. Because it shouldn't be that this parish is a jewel in the crown when it comes to certain things. It should be every parish should be competing with how many people do they have lining up for confession. That you can go somewhere and they'll say, yeah, we have 20 people almost every hour for confessions. And you can say, we have 25. (laughs) Because there's a joy there because that's people building up. Building up the, 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 I mean, we're all part of the body of Christ, and it's just, a, it's a really beautiful thing. And many of you might know this. I was, I was very emotional. I never thought, ever, ever thought I'd be a priest in a parish and be able to say to anybody that there were people lined up the length of the church to go to confessions. I never thought I'd live to see that. That is a fantastic thing. Truly fantastic. Because even if people did it because as one man said to me, I got in my car, Father, after you preached one Sunday, I sat in the car and I said to my family, he's got six kids, I think, he said to the family, well, I don't know about you lot, but Father Scott put the fear of God into me, so we're all off to confession next week. That's imperfect contrition. Does that get your sins forgiven you? Absolutely. Because if you go to confession, the more you go, the more you will begin to, to find perfect contrition the more you begin to see the love. And as St. Alphonsus, and I'll leave you with this, then we can pray. As St. Alphonsus of Liguri said, you must be a lion for a priest. You must be a lion in the pulpit and a shepherd in the box. But sometimes you have to frighten people to get them in there to realize how much God loves them. Is that not the story of what God kept having to do with the chosen people? Time and time again. Okay. So, I'm sure you all know this, but I want to make it very clear. It's only God who forgives sin. It's not the priest who forgives sin. The priest is used by Jesus as his mediator, but it's him that forgives sins, which means, of course, if you lie to a priest in confession, it makes no difference what the priest says because it's God that forgives your sins. So in the old Baltimore Catechism, there's this great picture where there's a boy going in and he has four books And each book, because it's a picture, has a sin on it. So one is lies, stealing, not saying his prayers, or something else. And he goes into the confessional. And when he goes into the confessional, he puts one of them behind his back. So when he comes out, instead of having four books, he's now got five. And the bottom one says, lying to the priest. Because it's God that you're speaking to. It's It's not the priest. Okay, now the other thing to, to um, cover is that confession 
who knew the forgiveness of baptism. So, the proper way to have your sins forgiven is to be baptized. You all remember that? And when your sins are, when you're baptized, you become, regardless of your age, all your sins are forgiven. You might remember that the Emperor Constantine used to go around with two priests because he had a lot of killing to do, just in case something happened to him, so he could be baptized. And how God judged that is completely up to him. But one of the things that you will sometimes have said to you by non-Catholics is that if confession is a real thing, why did St. Peter not hear the confessions of Cornelius? You'll find that in Acts chapter 10. Cornelius is a centurion who has the vision. At the same time, Peter is having a vision. Peter has a vision about with the sheet coming down, with all the things that you're supposed to eat and things like that. And eventually, um, Cornelius um, says that three days ago at this very hour, I was praying in my house on the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in shining garments and said, Cornelius, thy prayer has been heard and thy arms have been remembered in the sight of God. Send therefore to Joppa and call Simon, surnamed Peter. He is lodging in the house. So, and he gets, and Simon comes, and Simon baptizes his whole family, but he doesn't hear the confessions. Why would he not hear the confessions? Because he baptized them. But sometimes this is brought forward as, if baptism is a real thing, why doesn't he hear? Why doesn't he hear the confession? Well, because the correct understanding of baptism is all the sins are forgiven. The other one that's sometimes cited is in um, Acts 16, when Paul and Silas are in prison. You might remember that they, um, they just walk out of prison, and then the jailer, uh, roused out of sleep and seeing that the doors of the prison were wide open, drew his sword and was about to kill himself, thinking that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out in a loud voice, saying, Do thyself no harm, for we are all here. Then, calling for a light, he ran in, and trembling for fear, fell down before Paul and Silas. And bringing them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and thou shalt be saved, and thy household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his household. And they took them at that very hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he and all his family were baptized immediately. And taking them into his house, he set food before them and rejoiced that all in his household over his faith in God. So why did he not hear their confessions? It's just in case anybody says to you, that is one apparently that you'll find on a lot of evangelical websites saying that why does, why, is there no, why, why is confession not appear there? It's because they're baptized. It's a correct understanding of, of baptism. Okay, sin retards, mortal sin destroys the life of grace in the soul. This is Article 1444. In imparting to his apostles his own power to forgive sins, the Lord also gives them the authority to reconcile sinners with the church. This ecclesiastical dimension of their task is expressed most notably in Christ's solemn words to Simon Peter. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. The office of binding and loosing, which was given to Peter, was also assigned to the College of Apostles, united to its head. The words bind and loose mean, whomever you exclude from your communion will be excluded from communion with God. 
whoever you receive anew into your communion, God will welcome back into his. Reconciliation with the church is inseparable from reconciliation with God. We are the body of Christ, and we talked about last week. If you have an infected finger, it affects your whole body. We who sin also detrimentally affect everyone else. Sinners don't sin alone. Sinning harms the whole church. There's no such thing as an individual sin. Every sin affects all of us. We are all called to be saints. Every time one of us sins, we retard the ability for all the rest of us to become saints because we're in communion with the body of Christ. But that um, keys of the kingdom, let me read that out to you. So that's Matthew 16, 17 to 19. Peter's confession about Jesus. Jesus said to him in reply, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my heavenly Father. And so I say to you, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of the netherworld shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So some, that's something we're very familiar with. In fact, it's the text that is around the cupola, the dome, in St. Peter's in, in Rome. Let me read that again to you. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Now, looking at John, John 20, verses 22 to 23. Peace be with you, as the Father, this is the, the night of his resurrection, the Lord says to them, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit, whose sins you forgive are forgiven, and whose sins you retain are retained, not will be. Prior to his resurrection, prior to him breathing on them, it was, you will. Now he's saying, they are. Now I've checked a couple of different translations. So that this is what is, this is the difference. He tells Peter at that time, you will have this ability. He tells them, now you are able to do this. This is what you, now I breathed on you. What's the only other time that God breathes on anybody? Creation. It's the only other time. Breathing the Spirit, the life-giving Spirit. So when Jesus breathes on the apostles, he's breathing into them the ability for them to forgive sins or not. He gives them that, that ability. Okay, quick recap of what happens in confession. You must be contrite. You must confess your sins to a priest. Is it possible to go straight to God? It is. Why don't we do that? We don't do that, although we could do it. We don't do it because... God in his wisdom gave us the sacrament. Is it possible that people can have their sins directly forgiven from God? Yes, but how would they know? Whereas in the sacrament of confession, you hear the words of absolution. You hear the priest saying, your sins are forgiven. The other, you're living with your fingers crossed. You may be forgiven, you may not. When will you find out when it's too late because especially if you're a Catholic if you're not going to confession 
and you're thinking, I go directly to God. Well, first of all, as we talked about last week, that you are then in a state of sin because you're denying that the sacrament is, is real, and that's an excommunication. Personally, you excommunicate yourself if you say confession's not a real thing. But even if that was not the case, and you did that through ignorance, when you meet God, that's not the time for you to say, yeah, I've been talking to you all along, because God might say, who are you? There are people who will knock at the door and the, the master will say, who are you? I don't know you. Just because you think you're saying that. Because remember, God also reads our intent. We all know, because everybody in this room goes to confession, we all know the great benefit that the act of going to confession has from a point of view of humility. And when we go, we, we have to humble ourselves. I think it's C.S. Lewis says something about um, the act of humility. The first time that you achieve humility, it's like banging your foot on a rock. It really hurts. But then you look up and you might see, well, the sky looks beautiful today. <laughs> Benefit comes from it. We all know that. It helps, it helps us to become closer to saints. Okay, so before I go through what the, some of the church fathers said about that, I want to cover indulgences. Now, people go on and on and on about indulgences, but there's actually only one article in the Catechism about indulgences. 1471, and it says, An indulgence is a remission before God of the temporal punishment due to sins whose guilt has already been forgiven which the faithful Christian who is duly disposed gains under certain prescribed conditions through the action of the church, which, as the minister of redemption, dispenses and applies with authority the treasury of the satisfactions of Christ and his saints. An indulgence is partial or plenary according as it removes either part or all of the temporal punishment due to sin. The faithful can gain indulgences for themselves or apply it to the, uh, apply it to the dead. Now, temporal punishment for sins. Here's a way to think about it. You get a cut on your hand, so that would be sin on your soul. It begins to heal, that would be sorrow. It then heals, that would be forgiveness and confession. You're left with a scar. Now you know some cuts, the scars will disappear. But some cuts, if they're really deep, will leave a mark. When you get to, to purgatory, that scar tissue will be remo removed and replaced with totally healthy tissue so that you, when you go into the presence of God, you will be pristine like a baby. One of the reasons of the Immaculate Conception is that God, being pure, couldn't come into the world through anything unless it was completely pure. That's why we need to be completely clean before we go into heaven. Do you follow that? So indulgences, what are they? How do they, I mean, what is, what is it that we're applying? So Rob, he's a good man. Rob dies and I pray for him. I offer masses for him. But because he died in a state of grace and went straight to heaven, what happens to all those prayers and thing and sacrifices I'm offering in memory of Rob. They become, as I think St. Thomas described, they become a reservoir 
reservoir of prayerful goodness that the church is able to dispense through indulgences. So it's not your act alone. Your act is meritorious before God and God allows the church to apply the merits of the prayers that have built up for other people for that action to help release that person because God wants us to do these things because God wants us to be saints and he wants us to help other people become saints. Now, plenary indulgence, so that's for people who are dead, plenary indulgences for ourselves are extremely, extremely difficult to achieve because one of the things for a plenary indulgence for us, that's why it's a lot, it's a lot, it's much more doable to apply it to the dead because for us, part of the plenary indulgence is a total detachment from sinfulness. Now, the saints say it can be possible in their writings, but even Thomas Aquinas says it is rare because of how broken we all are. Because you think about this, you do something for a plenary indulgence for yourself, right? And then you, th- you say, yes, I've got a plenary indulgence. Pride. <laughs> 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 so, that's the danger that, that's the difficulty with that partial indulgences involve doing the, the things that are required a plenary indulgence for yourself is very difficult to achieve not impossible, the church, Holy Mother Church wouldn't, wouldn't offer it and suggest it but very difficult um, because it talks about but what we're talking about here is these are indulg- plenary indulgences for, your, for the dead and we all know dead people. And if, if, as I said at Mass, if your loved ones went straight to heaven, which of course is always possible, God will take it and apply it to somebody else. That's why we should pray for everyone. And don't get confused. You sometimes see 300 days, 500 days, five years, that kind of thing. That is only because people were desperate for there to be some kind of quantity to the magnitude of the thing. So, for example, two Hail Marys might get... um, Ah, the prayer... Actually, here's a better one. The prayer that we say for... um, to the Holy Spirit that we used to do here in the golf classes before before reading the Bible, that prayer... If you say that prayer before reading the Bible every every day, there's a 20-year indulgence. If you say, if you pray every day for the intentions of the Holy Father, there's like 500 days. Okay, now the reason for that is it's only quantifying from the point of view of the magnitude of what you're going to achieve. So if you walk from here to the shrine in Wisconsin, there'll be a bigger indulgence in the past. So if you walk from Canterbury in England to Santiago to Compostela in Spain, there were huge amounts of indulgences with that. There wasn't the same amount of indulgences if you sent a postcard. <laughs> okay. So it's a wonderful thing. Aren't we very blessed? Isn't this? In fact, um, one of my uh, professors at the end of one of his courses, he used to write on the board, aren't we lucky the faith we have is so much worth dying for? Anyway, okay, so... Now to wind this up, you might be thinking, what is 
what, what is the connection between Jairus' daughter, the widow of Nain, and the raising of Lazarus? Oh, dear, dear, dear. The clue would be dead coming back to life. So, Jairus' daughter, which is Luke 8, 40 to 56. Jairus sends a message. He's an official at the synagogue that his daughter is very ill. Jesus is in the crowd. People tell him. Then the lady with the hemorrhage touches him and gets cured. So the Lord looks around and he talks to her a while. And then while he was speaking, someone from the synagogue's official house arrived and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher any longer. When hearing this, Jesus answered, do not be afraid. Just have faith and she will be saved. Then he goes to the house. He takes Peter and and John, and if you remember, he says, child, arise, and she gets up. The widow of Nain is her son. Remember the incident? It's a funeral procession. They're outside the town. They're going to the cemetery. Jesus bumps into them, and he says, and and he realizes this, this, by being called the widow, that means she's got nothing left. She has to live on charity. Her last hope of having someone care for her was her son who's lying dead. And Jesus says to him, says to the son, get up. Not with that same tone, probably. (laughs) Get up, you're lazy, you're not dead. No, Jesus says, get up, and he gets up. The raising of Lazarus. How long was Lazarus in the tomb? Yeah, do you know why? Why he was in four days? Do you know why? Do, would you, do you know? Has it ever been explained to you why it would be four? It was four days in particular that we were. You weren't really dead under Jewish law until you were dead four days. Then you were really dead. Do you remember what his, what his sister says to our Lord when the Lord says, "Roll the stone away." She says, "There's going to be a stench." Okay. St. Augustine has a meditation to do with sin using these three. Jairus' daughter is raised from the dead in her own bedroom. So although she has given in to death, the death is a private death, so that would be venial sins, sins that happen within your own world that are not going to separate you from God. They're not taking you from your home, but they're endangering you. The widow of Nain's son is outside the town. His death, according to St. Augustine, can be seen as an illustration of when sin begins to separate you from your people, the people of God. And then Lazarus is well dead and stinky mortal sin mires you, drags you down and the only person who can bring you back is Jesus venial sin because you're not separated from your proper home beginning to experience mortal sin because you're you're separated from your home and then mired in mortal sin because you're apparently you're cut off and the only salvation is if God can stretch through 
and speak to your heart and bring you back. Prodigal son, also from St. Augustine. St. Augustine talks about the, the prodigal son being a, a good image when it comes to thinking about how Jesus interacts with us during confession. So, the Jew travelling from Jerusalem to Jericho is us. We're a pilgrim people journeying in a dangerous world towards our heavenly reward. The brigands that that we fall foul of are our own evil desires which lie in ambush all around us in our lives and batter our souls, sometimes wound us, sometimes leave us almost dead because of giving in to them. And the Good Samaritan is our Lord, who responds to the disaster of sin in which we often find ourselves. He binds up our injured soul through the sacrament of reconciliation. He washes us with oil and water. He tends to our wounds. Also, St. Augustine sees that the putting of uh, the, the, um, the assaulted man onto the donkey sees the donkey within the church as continuing the journey with Christ's help with his graces to get you to your destination, which is, of course, heaven. And the Jew is entrusted to the innkeeper, just as the souls of all the faithful are entrusted to the priests of the church. To assist them, the Samaritan, our Lord, gives the innkeeper sufficient money, sufficient ability to help the priests, the innkeeper, carry on helping to heal the Jew and the promises to return and make good any debt. One of the good things about this image, which is why I'm sharing it with you, is this is an image where sometimes we think about confession as a pit stop, as a time out. Oh, I'm a bit mired. I'll go, I'll get okay, and then I'll just carry on. What we should always be thinking of is confession is part of a ladder helping us get to heaven. Or the donkey in which our Lord meets us, puts us on the donkey, grace-filled life, the grace of the church, the liturgical actions of the church, and sends us on our destination. Not that he dusts us down, cleans us up and says, go on, go back out there and sin. It's not a stopgap. It should be a conversion experience. You shouldn't use confession from the point of view of I must get a confession because of what I've done because I don't want to go to hell. You know, we talked about that, perfect imperfect. We should always be moving towards perfect contrition. I'm doing this because I don't want to be separated from my father, not because I fear the consequences. It should always be an action of love. I will go to confession because I want to be with my loving father, not because I'm scared that I might end up in, in the hellfire. That's why you have to be careful when people come back and they're confessing the same sin and same sin time and time and time again because where is the conversion? Where is the purpose of amendment? Where is the growth? Where is the access to the graces? I'm sure that makes sense to everybody. Okay, then, so to wind this all up, some quotes from the early church fathers. The DDK, which as I'm sure you all remember, was written round about 70 AD. Confess your sins in church and do not give up to your prayer with an evil conscience. 
This is the way of life. On the Lord's day, gather together, break bread, and give thanks after confessing your transgressions so that your sacrifice may be pure. Then the letter of Barnabas, also written in the 70s. You shall judge righteously. You shall not make a schism, but you shall pacify those that contend by bringing them together. You shall confess your sins. You shall not go to prayer with an evil conscience. This is the true way of light. St. Ignatius of Antioch, round about the year 110. For where there is division and wrath, God does not dwell. To all them that repent, the Lord grants forgiveness. If they turn in penitence to the unity of God in communion with the bishop. Then St. Irenaeus of Lyon, writing in about 190. The Gnostics have deluded themselves. Their consciences have been branded as with a hot iron. Some of them, some of the women, make a public confession, but others are ashamed to do this, and in silence, as if withdrawing from themselves the hope of life of God, they either apostatize entirely or hesitate between the two courses. And what he's saying there is embarrassment can sometimes lead people to die in sin. It reminds me of when I was in RN, I was doing some district work out visiting people, and I walked into a woman's house at request of another nurse, and the smell of decomposing flesh was quite overpowering. And the little lady, who had never married, had no relatives left, had a huge fungating breast tumour, and she was too embarrassed to tell anybody. And she ended up dying, of course, because it went into her lung, it right through into her lung, all because she wasn't able to tell or discuss with someone such a private, what she considered such a private ailment. It's a good analogy for sometimes what happens to people who don't go to confession, that they're embarrassed to go to confession to confess sins that are still very serious sins. But that embarrassment they're feeling is part of the problem. It's separating them from God, just like that lady that I was talking about. Tertullian, writing in the year, around the year 200. Regarding confession, some flee from this work as being an exposure of themselves, or they put it off from day to day. I presume they are more mindful of modesty than of salvation, like those who contract a disease in more shameful parts of their body and shun making themselves known to the physicians. And thus, they perish along with their own bashfulness. Yeah, that could be talking about what I just talked about. Tertullian again. The church has the power of forgiving sins. This I must acknowledge. Hippolytus, saint, writing in the year 215. The bishop conducting the ordination of the new bishop shall pray. God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, pour forth now that power which from you, from the royal spirit, which you have given to your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, in which he bestowed upon his holy apostles, and grant this your servant, whom you have chosen for the episcopate, the power to feed your flock and to serve them without blame as your high priest, ministering night and day to propitiate unceasingly before your face and to offer to you the gifts of your holy church by the spirit of the high priesthood to have the authority to forgive sins in accord with your command. Origin. A final method of forgiveness, albeit hard and laborious, is the remission of sins through penance when the sinner does not shrink from declaring his sin to a priest of the Lord and from seeking medicine 
after the manner of him who would say, I said to the Lord, I will accuse myself of my iniquity. St. Cyprian of Carthage, a bishop, writing in round about 250. Of how much greater faith and salutary fear are they who confess their sins to the priests of God in a straightforward manner and in sorrow, making an open declaration of conscience. I beseech you, brethren, let everyone who has sinned confess his sins while he is still in this world, while his confession is still admissible, while the satisfaction and remission made through the priests are still pleasing before the Lord. Um, an Eastern saint, Afrat, who was in Persia, you priests then, who are disciples of our illustrious physician, you ought not deny a curative to those in need of healing. And if anyone uncovers his wound before you, give him the remedy of, pen- of repentance. And he that is ashamed to make known his weakness, encourage him so that he will not hide it from you. And when he has revealed it to you, do not make it public, lest because of it the innocent might be reckoned as guilty by your enemies and by those who hate us. Um, John Chrysostom, Saint John, uh, around about the year 400. Priests have received a power which God has given neither to angels nor to archangels. It was said to them, Whatsoever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever you shall loose shall be loosed. Temporal rulers have indeed the power of binding, but they can only bind the body. Priests, in contrast, can bind with a bond which pertains to the soul itself and transcends the very heavens. Did God not give them all the power of heaven? Whose sins you shall forgive, he says, they are forgiven them. Whose sins you shall retain, they are retained. What greater power is there than this? The Father has given all judgment to the Son, And now I see the Son placing all the power in the hands of men, his priests. And then we'll finish up with Pope St. Leo I, writing in 460. With regard to penance, what is demanded of the faithful is clearly not an acknowledgement of the nature of an individual sin written in a little book, since the states of the conscience must be made known privately alone to the priest in secret confession. Okay. Oh yes, and one last one last quote to read out before we finish off with the prayer. And that is the one that's on the board here. Second Corinthians five, seventeen to twenty. So whoever is in Christ is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. And all of this is from God, who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and given us, and here's the magic words, the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. If someone says to you, that's not in the Bible, what other meaning can there be for the ministry of reconciliation if it doesn't mean the ministry of reconciliation. As far as I can tell, those words, the ministry of reconciliation, means that there'll be a ministry of reconciliation. Seems to me that's a bit of a no-brainer. That's why I thought I'd end it. Thanks for joining us today. You can listen again to this or any other episode of Let's Talk Catholic at our blog, Let's Talk Catholic Podcast.blogspot.com, or you can find us on iTunes, Spotify, or almost any other podcast provider.
Let's Talk Catholic is produced by Nick Medelsky and can be heard right here on Relevant Radio in Northern Michigan, Saturdays at noon.